Welcome to Israel. It's midnight from Jerusalem. Our weekly virtual worship service and a collaboration between the Congregation of the Word and loveisrael.org. We're going to begin with our call to worship. We're going to look at a few verses from John's first epistle, 1 John and chapter 3. And here we're talking about love and how love was manifested by our Lord and Savior, Messiah, and how that love we can receive, and if we do, that love is certainly going to manifest itself in behavior. Again, we're not saved by that behavior, but being saved by the work of Messiah, his love is going to cause to bring about a great change in our life, how we live. So let's begin. Look with me to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read a few verses beginning with verse 16. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, where it says, Bezot hikarnu mahi ahava, which means, in this we recognize what is love. And this word for recognition has to do with knowing something with certainty. So in this, we have known, we have recognized what is love. In the fact that he, and of course the he here is Yeshua, that he has laid down his life that he has given himself in behalf of us. Also, and this means in light of what he has done, what we have received, the fact that he shed his blood for us in our behalf to redeem us, it says, also we, gam anachnu chayavim, limsor et nafshenu biad achenu. Also, we have to. And this means it's a natural outcome. It is what we are compelled to do, not because of some threat from God, but because of who we are. It is simply the natural outcome of receiving God's grace. We have to, and it's that same phrase, to give our life, to live sacrificially in behalf of others, it says here, in behalf of our brothers, meaning either fellow believers or simply one who is near us, a fellow human being. Verse 17. Who has the possessions, the goods of this world, and he sees his brother in need, lacking. Naturally, when we see that, there's going to be, as a believer, compassion towards that person. But it says here, and he refrains his compassion from this one. Instead of responding in the natural way, as a believer, someone who has been born again by what Messiah has done, our faith in that work that he did, laying down his life, shedding his blood in our behalf. It says, when we see someone who's lacking and we don't respond, we restrain the natural compassion that's within us because of being a new creation. He asks the question, Ech how will stand within us the love of God? How will that be manifested? How will that function in a, a work outcome? How's the love of God going to be working in our life if we reframe the compassion that naturally is going to come? And then he says, last verse, verse 18, Yeladai, my children. He says, my children, 
Ought we not also? And the key here is we should not just love in word and language, but here's true love. This is how we should love. Ki im rather befoal ubeemet. Foal means in activity, in action. So our love, we should not just speak kind words, say things, but rather we ought to function, act. And that action has to be in light of, he says, ubeemet, in light of the truth. Meaning it's the truth of scripture that teaches us how to behave properly, how to manifest the love of God that has entered into us the moment that we are saved. So very important instruction for us living out our faith, manifesting the love of God, not just in word, but in action and according to the truth. Now let's go to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6, for the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. V'yahavta et Adonai Elohecha, v'kol levavcha u'v'kol nafshecha u'v'kol meodecha. V'hayu hadvarim ha'ele asher anoki mitzvacha hayom al levavecha. V'shinanetam levanecha, v'debartam bam, v'shiftecha, v'vetecha, v'vlektecha, v'derk, u'kshakbecha, u'komecha. U'kshartam le'ot al yedecha, v'hayu le'totafot ben anecha, u'vtavtam al mezuzot betecha, u'vesherecha. And now, let us go before our Lord and Savior in a time of prayer. Father God, we praise you, for you are God. You have manifested your love to us while we were still sinners. Your love was offered, not based upon merit, not based upon works, not based upon even seeking. But you came into this world in order to redeem your people. Those who would name your son's name and submit to that only plan of salvation, the gospel. Receiving it by faith, wanting to be transformed into your servant. So Father God, we praise you for the change that happened to us the moment we believe and the growth and maturity that continues through the ministry, the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. Father, we come before you interceding tonight for others, praying for those who are indeed in need, who lack. Father, make us mindful of them. Help us to be individuals that minister in your name, that serve you by loving others and helping them in what they lack. Father, we exalt you. We praise you that you are a God of, of healing and restoration. So we pray for these things tonight, that you would restore individuals to you that, that feel broken, who have failed you, who have, have stumbled. We pray for an encouraging spirit to be placed upon them, that they would renew their faith in you, that they would realize your, your power through forgiveness, that you have promised never to leave nor forsake. And even when we are faithless, you, Father, are faithful. So, Father, we, we come before you in assurance that your mercy, your grace is sufficient for all, all of our sins, all of our failures, all those times that we, we act not in faith but in faithlessness. We thank you that you can restore and Father, we also pray for healing for those who are sick, whatever the, the hurt, the problem, the, the issue is. Lord, we pray for, for healing for that. Healing of body, mind, soul, spirit, all healing. Lord, we pray. We, we pray for encouragement to be given to those who are discouraged. Hope for those who are hopeless. 
and Father, strength for those who are going through times of weakness. Lord, we look to you. We pray for the nation of Israel. We pray for the other nations that are represented in our congregation tonight. Lord, we, we lift up to you the leaders, asking that they would look to you and to your word for guidance, for truth, in order that they might be faithful leaders. Lord, we pray for the police, we pray for military, we pray for a spirit of righteousness through these individuals, that justice would be maintained, that evil would be, would be destroyed, and that righteousness would shine forth. Father, we know that, that we are entering difficult times, and we pray for that spirit of, of, of faithfulness to be upon us that we might walk in obedience to your word, that we might be instruments of, of your righteousness. And Lord, if that means that, that we are, are worked against, that there are those who persecute and come against us, Lord, we know that in the end, victory are for your people who have named your son, who have entered into that new covenant. So Father God, all these things we, we lift up to you in the blessed name of our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, Yeshua Mashiach, Jesus Christ. Amen. Change is coming. We need to see that God, even when we don't see him visibly, and we might not see his work with our eyes, God is present. And in the book of Esther, even though the name of God does not appear there in any form, God is at work. There are people who have faith in him. And those people are going to be used by God to bring about a change. A change and these circumstances of change have great revelation for you and for me. We need to be people that affirm the power of God to make a difference, to bring about a change in circumstances, whereby in the end, God's righteousness, God's will, God's plan is going to move forward until that glorious day when all will be fulfilled according to his will. Take out your Bible and look with me to Megillat Esther, the book of Esther, and chapter 5. Now, we left off last week with Esther and her attendants praying and fasting. And not just these eight women, but also Mordecai and the Jewish community in that capital, Shushan, all were praying and fasting for her to go before the king and make a request, a supplication, a petition for her people. Now, remember, the king, he doesn't know who is the people of, of Esther. What is her heritage? He knows nothing. But Esther, out of following in an obedient manner, the instructions of Mordecai, the man of God, she has been positioned in a significant location. She's in the king's palace. She has access to the king. But now we have learned that for 30 days, a very significant number, 30 oftentimes in the Bible speaks of death, for 30 days she has not seen, spoken to, the king. And we learned last week that she is being commanded by Mordecai to go immediately before King Ahasuerus in order to plead for her people in light of wicked Haman's plan to exterminate the Jewish people. Esther said, I'll go, but first, let's fast. Let's fast for three days and three nights. Then I'll do what is unlawful. I will go before the king, not being summoned by him, which may bring about 
my death. So now we see the moment of truth. The time has arrived. The fasting, the prayer is completed, and she's going to go before the king. What will take place? Well, look with me to this fifth chapter of the book of Esther, verse 1. Notice how it begins. And it came about on what day? The third day. Now, this is very reminiscent of what we see in the Gospels. We know that the Scripture says that Messiah is going to be in the belly of the earth, in that tomb, for three days and three nights. Of course, his body was in the tomb, but his, his soul descended into Sheol, where he proclaimed truth to all those there. So, three days and three nights, but... On the third day, he rose again. Now, people oftentimes have problem with this seemingly contradiction. Three days and three nights, and then after three days and three nights, he rose. Rose on the third day. Well, he was in the tomb in Sheol three days and three nights. But the scripture has no difficulty with this because the term the third day, the number three, is for the purpose of revelation. The number three relates to victory. So when it says here in chapter 5 and verse 1, on the third day this came about, it's referring to the reader. We need to understand. God is going to reveal something to us, and it's going to have a good outcome. We can expect a victorious outcome because of this event, that Esther submitted, she obeyed, she did what the man of God instructed her, and good is going to come from it. Look again at verse 1. And it came about on the third day, and Esther put on, and it's simply royalty, meaning the royal garments. She went in as Queen Esther. And this is all to cause the reader to be reminded that God put her in as queen. And there was a purpose for this. What God does in your life has a greater purpose than just your life. What God is up to is not solely for you, but so that you can impact others through your testimony, through your behavior, through much of your life. So we read here, and Esther put on, and the implication is royal, royal garments. And she stood in the courtyard of the inner house of the king, meaning his palace, in this inner place. And it says here that, that this place, keep reading, was before the king's house. And the king was sitting. He sits upon the throne of his kingdom in the king's house, that royal house, that palace, which is before the entrance of the house. Now, all of this is to refer to the reader what's going on. The king is setting upon the throne. It gives us very clear instructions where that throne was in light of the greater palace compound. It tells us that Esther, initially, she was where? Notice what it says. She stood in the courtyard of this palace, but the inner courtyard. And that means inside, but it can also mean at the entrance because of what we see later on. And it was there at the entrance to this, this palace compound. It was there the king's throne was. That people came in and they saw the power. The, the place where the king ruled from. Now look at verse 2. And it came about when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the courtyard. What happens? Well, there's two possibilities. One is the king can see her in this location where she ought not be. 
She was not summoned by him. One who enters into this location uninvited, not called by the king, this one is taking his life into his own hands. Because one who comes to this location uninvited, the king simply can give the command that this one be put to death. He came into the presence of the king in not the proper way, not having been invited. But we learned last week there is one exception. There is a rule that if the king extends that, that golden scepter, then and only then that person can remain alive. And what's going to happen? How is the king going to respond to Esther? Well, notice, she's doing this not from her own initiative. She's doing this because she was commanded to do so by, by Mordecai. She's queen. She doesn't have to. But she knows that the man of God who has taught her scriptural truth, the one who has been her authority, her being his niece, being brought into his house, and he demonstrated his love for God, his love for her, by teaching her biblical truth. And now she is responding out of obedience. And what is that obedience? What is that prayer and fasting going to bring about? Well, notice, she was fearful. She thought, as we concluded last week, where we read, in the end of, of chapter 4, at the final part of verse 16, Vechasher avadati avadati, which means when I die, I'll die. She expects this not to go well. But out of obedience and out of belief in the power of prayer and fasting, she goes in. And now we're going to see the outcome of God at work. Notice what it says. Look again at verse 2. And it came about when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the courtyard. What took place? And, and grace was lifted up. This word can mean also favor. She found favor in his eyes. And what did he do? The king stretched forth unto Esther this golden scepter which was in his hand. So he received her. He acted in a way that caused her to have life instead of experiencing death. And Esther drew near and she touched the top of this scepter. Now, this all refers to us, the reader. That, that Esther is operating under favor. She found favor, but what's the source of that favor? Her submissiveness, her obedience. Now, this principle is true, not just for women, but for all individuals before godly authority. And I want to emphasize that. This is a biblical principle. When there is godly authority, and we submit to it, God's going to be at work, God's going to bring about a change, something good is going to take place. She goes there, and we find that the king responds in the only way that things can end well for her, and not just her. She's going there on assignment. She is a type of, of messenger. She's going there with a message for her people. Look on to verse 3. And the king said to her, Malach, which means, what is to you? He wants to know the reason that Esther has done this. He says, what is with you, Esther the queen? And he knows that if she's come, she has to have a request. He says, and what is your request? Unto, and he doesn't have to say this, but unto half my kingdom, and it will be given to you. Now, this expression, 
is an idiom. We can take it literally. He's saying, unto half my kingdom, which is anything that you ask that does not put the kingdom to harm, I am willing to do. He knows two things. First of all, he knows that this must be of the utmost significance. He has come to know Esther's personality, how she behaves, what she does and what she doesn't do. This is extremely out of character for her to do this action, to come before him uninvited, not having been called. So he knows there's a significant reason that she has a request. And what he's affirming, and this is the outcome of prayer and fasting. It's the outcome of God being at work in this situation because Esther is obeying. She is submitting. She is recognizing godly authority in her life. This brings God into the situation. So he says, I'll do whatever you are asking, as long as it's not something that would harm this kingdom, that is not against the, the kingdom purpose, meaning his kingdom purpose. So, so we find here this request unto half the kingdom, and it will be given to you. Look at verse 4. And Esther, she says, if concerning the king, good. That's what it literally means. Now, what she's doing is she's telling the king something. Why I'm here, it is. Only if you see it as good, as proper. I'm not asking for anything that, that's harmful to you, to the kingdom. I want you to realize that what I'm going to ask is for good. And I want you to recognize that, that this is good. Now, we know this word tov has to do with God's will. This is also a way of conveying to the reader. She's here, not for herself, but rather she is an instrument that is submissive to the will of God. So look again at verse 4. Esther said, if concerning the king, good, this is good. Let the king, the king will come and Haman today, this very day, unto the banquet. This is a, a feast, a banquet, which I have prepared for him. Now, it would seem to imply that this banquet is all ready. It is there. She's acted. And here's another hint from the text. Now, we see at the end of, of chapter 4, at the closing words of verse 16, that expression, Vechasher avadati avadati. And when I die, I die. Now, that's her from a rational standpoint. This is what she believes in the natural is going to happen. But she's not remaining in the natural. She is fasting and praying. This brings about a change from what, what normally would be the natural. And therefore, she is demonstrating faith because during this time of fasting and praying, she's also having this banquet, this feast prepared so that everything's ready. And this shows two things. It shows that even though in one sense, her rational mind, she's saying, this isn't going to end well. But that inner person, that woman of faith is acting in faith, having this, this banquet all ready, expecting that the king is going to respond favorably. So she says that you and Haman, that you should come this day to the banquet which I have prepared for him, meaning this is primarily about the king. Verse 5. And the king said, hurry, meaning hurry up things, 
he's speaking this to his officials. He's saying, hurry up, Haman, to do the word of Esther, this matter. In other words, hurry now, get Haman, in order that this, this thing of Esther, that it will be brought about. And the king came and Haman to this banquet, which Esther had prepared. Now, there's going to be something interesting. We see here that Mordecai, he said over and over, now is the time. And we see that she says, I'll do it, but first, let's, let's bring this matter before God. Let's pray about it with fasting. And that took place. And now we see that she's going to do this in the midst of this banquet, but we're going to find that there's going to be two banquets. The first one is not going to bring about any change, any change for the people of Israel, but it's the second one that will. Now, we know what comes into my mind, and this doesn't mean that it's, it's correct, but what comes into my mind is what we saw in the book of Genesis. When, when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers the first time, no response. It was like it didn't, didn't enter into their mind. They didn't understand. But when he did it the second time, things change. We know for the children of Israel, in the majority sense, Messiah's first coming, they're not going to respond to, but the second one, there's going to be a change. And this may be, and I emphasize, may be a reference to something similar. That this is not speaking for that time, the time of Mordecai and Esther, but these principles are for a second time that there's going to be a plan to exterminate the Jewish people, and the plan will be at the end of the age, under the leadership of not Haman, but the Antichrist. Look, if you would, to verse, verse 6. We read, And the king said to Esther at this banquet of wine. Now, wine is put in, and there's two possible reasons. First of all, if you look at Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, there the word wine is used in regard to love. And this may be a reference that he is speaking, and he's speaking to her at this banquet. We'll see what he says in a moment. And he's doing so in a loving manner. Secondly, we see that wine can also relate to joy, happiness, gladness. And this may foreshadow what the outcome is going to bring about because in the end, there will be that joy, that gladness, that happiness, that rejoicing for the Jewish people. So once more, verse 6, And the king said to Esther at the banquet of wine, What is your question? Now, some will say, What is your petition? What are you asking for? And he says in advance, it will be given to you. And what is your request unto half the kingdom? Meaning once more, as long as this is not something that I deem dangerous to the kingdom, the, the stability of the kingdom, he says at the end of verse 6, it will be done. So he's already agreed to anything that's reasonable. Verse 7. Notice her response. We read now that Esther answered and said, my, my petition, my, my question, and my request. So she's going to reveal that. She says, if, look now to verse 8, if I have found grace or favor in your eyes, it's the Hebrew word chen, not chesed, which is more grace. This is favor. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if concerning the king, it's good, she says again, this is all about what's good for you. This isn't going to harm the kingdom. 
This isn't going to have an adverse effect. I want you to see that it's good, good, that, that I will at that time give my, my petition and I will do my request, meaning make my request, and the implication is made known. And if this is good in your eyes, let the king come and Haman to the festival, this banquet, which I will do for them. And the implication is tomorrow. And tomorrow I will do as the word of the king. So he, she says, if you want to know what my question, my petition, and my request is, come tomorrow. I will make another banquet. Now, the implication is that this banquet, this fine food, this, this, this event that she has made, obviously, that both the king, Ahasuerus, and wicked Haman, they, they're enjoying themselves. It is a, a special night. And now she's saying, I hear what you say. You want to know what my petition and what my request is. And therefore I ask, if indeed I have found favor, come tomorrow, both of you, and at this festival, this banquet, that I will make for you tomorrow. At that time, I'm going to respond to what you just said concerning my, my question to you, my request to you. It's going to be done at that time. Verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. We read here, And Haman went forth. Now, this term for going forth means to go out. He is leaving. The conclusion has happened of the first night, this banquet. And now he's going forth and he's on his way home. But notice what the scripture says. It says, Vayetse Haman, Haman went forth, Beyom Hahu, on that day. Now I have shared many, many times that expression, Beyom Hahu implies judgment. In this scripture, and realize something, scripture, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It does not contain any errors. It is a, a divine revelation. But nevertheless, we see that scripture can use literary devices in order to help us, us human beings, understand God's revelation. And here we see a tool, this expression, Be'yom Ha'hu, throughout the scripture, it implies judgment, a judgment day, usually that great final judgment day at the end of the age. But here, what it's foreshadowing is that judgment is coming to Haman. He's gone forth, everything set up for tomorrow, this other banquet, and it is going to lead to his demise, him being judged. Look again at verse 9. And Haman went forth beyom hahu on that day. Now, judgment's coming for him. If you know this book of Esther, you know this. But he does not. He's in spiritual darkness to what God's up to. That Esther, he doesn't know that she's a tool, a vessel of the living God. He doesn't know how God is at work. So he goes home glad and with a good heart, meaning joyful. But, and this is when it gets significant, but when Haman sees Mordecai at the, the gate of the king, this is where Mordecai was. He was always wanting there to be righteous judgment at the gate, a place of judgment, where the leaders of the king would give counsel, give a, a verdict on matters of contentions within the administration. Mordecai was always at work. 
Always there because of his commitment. And what we should glean from this is his commitment to righteousness. That's what motivated Mordecai. That's why he was there. He was utterly, totally committed to righteousness. So Haman, he's going home. He is so happy. He's at this banquet with only the king and the queen. No one else is there. He's feeling awfully good about himself. He's joyful. He's got a glad heart. But when Haman sees Mordecai at the gate of the king, and here's what really upsets him. Velo kam velo za mimenu. That Mordecai did not get up and he did not move because of him. Meaning this, Mordecai refused to acknowledge Haman and the, the law that, that gave Haman a special status. Mordecai rejected that. Now you say he's rejecting the word of the king. He is. Why? This is a message for us. Learn something. Yes, we're supposed to be good citizens. Yes, in a general way, we are called to obey civil law. What the government say, but, and this is a huge, huge statement, but when a government enacts a law, a rule, a policy that is in conflict with the word of God, we must disobey. Just that simple. And the Bible is full of examples of that. And when you read rightly Romans 13, the first four verses, don't stop after two, but read all four verses. We see that the government that we are called to obey are those who punish evil and reward good, who carry the sword to intimidate people to do the right thing, not the wrong thing. When a government is using the sword for the wrong thing, we stand against it. It's just that simple. And this is why Christianity and the truth of Scripture is, is so, so feared in places where there are dictatorial governments, where they are exploiting people. Because they know the word of God stands against that and that the people of God will stand against such a regime. So they don't want the truth. This is the outcome. So Mordecai, he didn't get up. He did not move because of him. And the outcome of that, look at the end of verse 9. And Haman, he was full concerning Mordecai of anger. Now the word here is the word chema, which is a word for something hot. So he's got a hot anger, a wrath, an indignation. Rage is another way that this can be translated. That's how he feels concerning Mordecai. But what did he do? Verse 10. But Haman restrained himself and he went to his house and he sent and he brought, meaning he had his officials bring his friends and his wife, who is his wife, Zeresh, Zeresh before him. And what did he do? Look at verse 11. And, he, and Haman told to them, he told, made mention of the glory of his wealth, the abundance of his sons, meaning how many he had and all which the king had promoted him, all that the king had done to him in promoting him, and also that he had been lifted up above all the other cabinet officials and servants of the king. Now, he found joy in these physical things, his wealth and the glory of his wealth. Now, many of the scholars point out that he was, and we know this, exceedingly wealthy if he could have 10,000 talents of silver be placed in the royal treasury. He was exceedingly wealthy. Secondly, 
That wealth brought him an earthly glory and esteeming among other people. And also he had, we know, 10 sons. This is seen as, as a way of, of favor in that culture, having all these boys. And also, we see that he was promoted. We know this. We read this earlier. He was promoted as the number one official. To the extent that all other officials, all other servants, had to acknowledge this by bowing before him, bending the knee and bowing and recognizing him. But Mordecai did not. Now, he was saying this to his friends. He was just bragging, and this gave him comfort, pride, and, and manifesting that pride was a source of comfort in the natural one. But it's a source of judgment for, for the presence of God, before the presence of God. So he was saying all of this, and notice verse 12. And Haman said, in addition to all this, and not brought by Esther, the queen, with the king to this festival, which she had made, no one else was brought except me by the queen. Only I, along with the king, was requested to be at this banquet. And also, tomorrow, I am invited, I'm called literally, to her with the king. So now we see that Haman is reciting all these things that make him special, that make him different. But he's still remembering what just had taken place at the gate of the king. What does he say? Look at verse 13. And all of this, a nenu shave, meaning all of this exceedingly great things from an earthly standpoint. His wealth, his large family, his 10 sons, the honor that he's received, the position that he's obtained, all of this, he says, isn't equal. It doesn't give me satisfaction. It's not equal. All the while, which I see Mordecai, and this is emphatic, Mordecai the Jew, sitting at the gate of the king. Now, we need to un unravel this properly because I've already said to you that Haman, he is a man that is only thinking of his objectives, what he wants. He is committed to his prideful intent. And we're going to see next week what he really wants is to be the king. He's the one that's truly a threat to Ahasuerus and his kingdom. No one else is, not the Jewish community. And Mordecai, what does it emphasize about him? It emphasizes how over and over and over, who Yoshev, Beshaar Hamalek, that he is sitting at the gate of the king. And I shared with you, this is an idiom that speaks about his desire for righteousness. So what we see is this. Haman, now whether he understands this inwardly, rationally, in his brain or not, is not important. But Haman is not for righteousness. He is not for the well-being of, of the nation, the empire, that he is the number two official in. He's about his own objectives. He stands in opposition to righteousness. And therefore, Mordecai is a threat to that. He has to get rid of Mordecai and all the people of Mordecai's heritage, those who stand for biblical truth. He's got to get rid, exterminate them. Why? So that he can bring in his administration, an administration that is against the righteousness that God has revealed first to the Jewish people, that Mordecai is, is expressing, that he is a symbol of. 
And in the same way, hear this point, when the Antichrist, when he realizes that Israel won't bow the knee and won't fall prostrate, that is, worship him, he is going to enact something very similar, a plan to exterminate all the Jewish people in the last days. Because God is using Israel to establish his righteous kingdom until Israel, the Jewish people, agree by saying, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Until we affirm the purposes of God, the kingdom's not going to be established. And when I say we, I'm speaking about Israel. And until they acknowledge that it's Messiah who does that, and they want Messiah, and then their eyes are going to look upon who the Messiah is, Yeshua. Until that event happens, the kingdom of God, a kingdom of righteousness, will not be established. The Antichrist knows if he can destroy the Jewish people, and they do not say that expression, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, without that being said, God's kingdom won't come. So he wants to exterminate the Jewish people before this time. Now, I want to pause and just go off on a brief tangent for a moment. Because there are those who teach something that's not correct. And that is that, that believers' support for Israel has nothing to do with the love for the Jewish people. That is a false statement. It has everything to do with the love for the Jewish people. I love, I live in Israel, and I'm amazed of the number of different ministries that receive large donations, collectively I'm speaking, in order to bless the Jewish people. Why? Out of obedience to God. God says, if you bless them, you'll be blessed. He instructs us to do that. So many of the nations are doing just that. With, with no other desires but to obey God, be a blessing, and know that God is going to look favorably upon that. There is a true love among true believers for Jewish people. And these individuals that teach know the evangelical support of Israel has to do with an end-time scenario. They're not doing it for, for true love. They're doing it because of a theological belief. They're doing it because of, of what they think has to happen for, for the end to be established. That's simply not the case. We need to see something. And that is that God, if you look at the book of Revelation, it is Messiah himself that's going to open up the seals and that he is going to say when the time is right for these last day events to happen. It is not believers. It's not the church. It's not the evangelical individuals that bring this about. There is a sincere and genuine love when the presence of God through the Holy Spirit enters into a person. If you love the God of Israel, you're going to love Israel and the people of Israel, the Jewish people. It's just that simple. There's no alternative motives or, or uh, other motives for this whatsoever. Now let's go back to the text. We read here, look at verse 13. He says, all of this, all of this honor does not uh, equal the, the dissatisfaction that I feel all the while that I see Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the king. He doesn't want Mordecai and what Mordecai stands for and what Mordecai is a symbol of to be the reality. Verse 14, our last verse. Now here we're going to see what the council, the first council, of his wife and his friends are to, to Haman. And Zeresh, his wife, says to him, and also all of his friends. So it's in the singular, feminine, meaning she's speaking, but there's an agreement 
with all those friends that he has assembled. So the wife and his friends are saying in one accord, let them, meaning your officials, your servants, let them make a high tree. That means a gallow, a place that, that someone can be hung from. Let them make a high gallow, 50 cubits in height. And in the morning, say to the king that they should hang Mordecai upon it. So he's saying, why don't you just go to the king? Why don't you get everything ready? You make this, this gallows in order and a high one, and the number 50 is going to be important in a few moments. And you go to the king and you say to him, what you want to happen in the morning. Therefore, you can go that night, later that day, to the festival, this banquet that Esther made, you can go joyfully with gladness. And this thing was good before Haman, and he made the tree, meaning he made the gallows. Now, I'm going to just say one thing before we wrap up this time together. And that is next week, when we begin chapter 6, a change is going to happen. God is going to begin to move in some visible ways. God has been at work. His presence is there in this situation through people of faith, through Mordecai, through Esther, and the other Jews who are praying and fasting that we talked about a week ago. God is at work. He is there. But we haven't seen a great outcome of that. We began to see it with this, this favor that Esther had. And now the last thing that we're told at the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6 begins this change is that there are there is a gallow built of 50 cubics. 50 is an important number. When we hear the number 50, what should come into our mind? Jubilee. And jubilee, that word yovel in Hebrew, a synonym for that is freedom, liberty. And what we're going to find is this, that even though he built these gallows for the destruction of Mordecai, it is going to bring about liberty, and freedom. This gallow is going to be used in order to, to bring about death of the enemy, not the death of Mordecai. Why? God's going to bring a change. And all of these thoughts, all of these unrighteous intentions that Haman had, all of these things that he's put into order, God, in a moment, is going to move, and he's going to turn them upside down. He's going to use them for good, what the enemy intended for evil. Now, we know that verse in the, the, the scripture that says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. But, but this principle is seen in many ways throughout the scripture. What the enemy intended for evil, that is the cross, God used for, for his glory. In order to be the foundation of life, God's able to turn death into life. So what we see in this second half of the scroll of Esther is God moving to take all the evil intentions of the enemy and overturn them into something that will be a blessing, something that will be good, something that will be a source of joy. That is the nature of our God. And that's why it's so important that we submit to him, recognize his authority, and watch him turn things upside down in this world. When it seems the very lowest for Mordecai, Haman has got this plan for his death that's going to take place in Haman's mind the next day in the morning time. But what's going to happen? All of that, just like that, is going to change. God is good.
The wisest thing that you and I can do is recognize his authority by submitting, by obeying, praying and fasting that we are part, that we are used by him for his purposes and his will. Well, I'll close with that until next week. Shalom from Israel.